Welcome to the podcast by Pleasant Valley, where we talk about biblical truth, address your questions, and seek to help you fall deeper in love with Jesus. Let's get started. Welcome back to the podcast by Pleasant Valley. I'm your host, Caleb Eisler. And after a long hiatus, just kind of ramping up for Easter and getting prepped for Easter, we are back on the podcast. For this week's recording, we're going to listen to a message I preached at 20-somethings just before Easter on the topic of the Lord's Supper. In 20-somethings, once a month, we step back from our normal sermon series, which this semester we're going through the the book of Malachi, verse by verse. But once a month, we step back from that sermon series, and we take part in a sermon series that we called Foundations. And once a month, we will talk about just a basic and foundational belief of the faith and just talk through why we believe that, why it's important. And uh, we don't want to assume that just because you've been raised in church, you would understand why we believe everything we do. And so we just think it's helpful to reflect on that. And this message itself reflects on the Lord's Supper. And what you'll find in the message is that it begins with just a basic understanding of, of what we believe about the Lord's Supper biblically and theologically. And then there's a turn where we talk through the differences between the Protestant understanding of the Lord's Supper and the Roman Catholic understanding of the Lord's Supper and why those differences are large and really important. We know that there's a lot of things we, we agree with the Roman Catholic Church about as far as the doctrine of God and the basic beliefs of the faith when it comes to the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed and the Council of Chalcedon and, the, and those big and important church creeds. But we also know there's some major and fundamental differences between Protestants and Catholics too. And the Lord's Supper is one of those areas. And those differences are significant enough that we thought it was important to talk about. And so I I hope that that discussion will be informative and helpful to be able to see the differences there and why they matter. And then after we we do kind of that comparison discussion, the message ends with some beautiful gospel truths about the Lord's Supper. And my prayer is that those truths would just warm your heart to the Lord's Supper. You would see the beauty of the Lord's Supper and that it would help you understand the Lord's Supper even more and enjoy it more when you partake of it next. And so without further ado, let's, let's dive into this message on the Lord's Supper from just before Easter 2021. So for me, the best meal I've ever had was last July, and it was at Capitol Grill with Nathan Larson. Some of you know who Nathan is. Uh, Nathan, yeah, that's right. So uh, Nathan, uh, was a member of 20-somethings for a long time, still is in spirit, is off at Missouri State. And uh, Nathan worked at Capitol Grill, this amazing, really fancy steakhouse uh, downtown at the plaza. And Nathan was kind of closing up his time there to get ready to go off to school. And so his managers and coworkers just loved him to death. And they said, you know what, to celebrate you kind of moving on to college, we want to we wanna bless you. And so come in, bring one friend, and basically the whole meal's on us. We'll just have you pay for some cheap stuff, but basically order whatever you want, and it's on us. And we're not talking like McDonald's. I mean, this is like maybe the best steakhouse in Kansas City. There's some debate there. And so he, he graciously invites me, and we go there, and we sit down. And already, you know, we're walking to the restaurant. All these coworkers and managers and folks are, are giving him hugs. They're so excited to see him. And so we sit down, and the waiter comes over and takes our order. You know, and I'm looking at the menu, and, uh, you know, I, I don't order expensive stuff very often, so I'm like, okay, I'm just going to order the cheapest thing. Like, I just want to be super respectful here. And so, you know, Nathan kind of had the same, the same mindset, actually. And so we both go to order, and the waiter kind of, you know, looks kind of weird at us and then takes the order back. And then one of the cooks, who's one of Nathan's friends, comes back and is adamant. He goes, no, you're ordering again. This is on us. 
order the nicest stuff you want, whatever you want. So we're like, okay. And we went hog wild. We ordered the nicest steaks you could get. We ordered lobster. We ordered all the appetizers, all the sides, all the desserts, everything you could possibly imagine. As we get some pictures here, this is like one course. There were like several courses to this meal. And like they would bring up these massive wood platters to carry everything. I can't, I can't prove this. He wouldn't give me the exact number, but I think the bill would have been like five, $600. I mean, that's like, it was, it was incredible. And yet, uh, I'm telling you, it was the best meal I've ever had in my life. I mean, just amazing meat. And I didn't have to hardly pay anything for it. And I get to eat it with a friend. Uh, best meal I've ever had. Tonight, we are going to talk about the true best meal we get to eat this side of glory. And that is the Lord's Supper. And so in order to do that, uh, we're going to break down a couple passages of Scripture that we're going to kind of camp out in and just see what the Bible has to say about the Lord's Supper and that beautiful meal we get to eat together. So I'm going to read through them all the way through, and then we'll kind of break them down. The first one is Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 14. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 14. Let me give you a couple seconds to turn there, tap there, and then I will read through. Give you a couple seconds to turn there. Luke 22, starting in verse 14, and then the next one will be 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Just kind of look up when you get there. Okay, so Luke 22, starting in verse 14, says this, And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. And I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, starting in verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. And I'll just give you just a touch of background while you're turning there. In this passage, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth to correct the problematic practices in the life of the church, including problems related to the Lord's Supper. It's a little bit of context. So, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. Uh, English Standard, ESV. So it says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Okay, that was a lot of scripture. And so I want to summarize those verses in, in basically a statement. And then we're going to break that down. 
So if you could summarize what those verses teach in kind of one little bit longer sentence, it would say this. The Lord's Supper is a memorial meal instituted by Christ for believers that is meant to proclaim the gospel, serve as a covenant sign, provide spiritual nourishment, and promote the communion of the church until Christ's return. I'm going to read that one more time. The Lord's Supper is a memorial meal instituted by Christ for believers that is meant to proclaim the gospel, serve as a covenant sign, provide spiritual nourishment, and promote the communion of the church until Christ's return. <clears throat> so let's break that down just a little bit. First point. First, uh, one of the primary elements of the Lord's Supper is that it's a memorial meal. Jesus tells us to do this in remembrance of Him. We are called to remember Jesus' incredible sacrifice and display of love at the cross. We're called to remember and reflect on the gospel in the Lord's Supper. The bread signifies Jesus' body broken for us, and the wine signifies Jesus' blood poured out for us. The Lord's Supper is meant to consistently cast our minds back to the cross. It's kind of like when a couple, a married couple, watches a wedding video. They're not literally reliving their wedding, but they are, for all intents and purposes, drawn back to the day that they were married with incredible clarity. When the couple comes together to watch the video, they are reminded of their incredible display of love for one another over all the years, and they can take part in that time and time and time again when they come together. In many ways, the Lord's Supper is just like that. It's not, it's not literally reliving the events of the cross, but for all intents and purposes, it's meant to take our minds right back to the time of the crucifixion, that we would deeply feel the sacrifice that Jesus gave for us. <clears throat> Next, and kind of closely related, when we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the gospel. Paul affirms this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six when he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every single time we take the Lord's Supper, we should hear and proclaim the gospel loudly as we celebrate it by taking the bread and the wine. Next, the Lord's Supper is a covenant sign. Covenant signs are physical signs that represent a covenant. We see covenant signs every single day. For example, wedding rings are covenant signs. They are a physical sign and seal of the covenant vows made by the couple on their wedding day. Physical signs and actions help affirm this reality that they signify. A handshake confirms a deal. A hug helps affirm affection. So think about it this way. Would you not wear a ring and then tell your wife that your word is enough? You can say, well, hey, I said it once. I, I don't need to show it again. I don't need to wear my ring. Well, that wouldn't fly. The physical sign of the commitment you made is really, really significant. The Lord's Supper is like a ring and the gospel is the promise. It's a reminder of God's promise to us. Covenant signs are not just key for our everyday life, they're key for the storyline of Scripture. And we could talk about a lot of different examples, but let's just look at one. After God makes a covenant with Noah in Genesis, he gives a covenant sign in the rainbow. The rainbow is a physical reminder of the covenant God made with Noah and mankind. The Lord's Supper is a sign of the new covenant. Jesus explicitly tells us this when he says that the wine is the new covenant in his blood. And covenant signs in the Bible are not signifiers of anything that we do or humanity does. They're signifiers of what God does. The signs of the covenants in Scripture are always signs of God's grace. When we take the Lord's Supper, we shouldn't be thinking, here's five things I need to do to get ready. No, we should be thinking, God is remembering His covenant. 
In the same way, when you see that rainbow, it's not all the things we need to do. It's this reminder that God is remembering his covenant and he's not going to bring another flood like that again. Next, the Lord's Supper is meant for believers only. Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17 when he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, it is, is it not a participation of the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. You have to be part of the body of Christ in order to partake in the supper of Christ. One of the things I think Paul means in 1 Corinthians 11 is that when unbelievers take the supper, they actually bring judgment on themselves. Because it's a meal that requires faith to understand and to be nourished and be fed, and yet someone is not actually proclaiming that Christ has died if they're an unbeliever. Remember, every time we do this, we're proclaiming the death of Christ. And yet, if someone is an unbeliever and they take the Lord's Supper, they're not actually proclaiming that Christ died for their sins. And so it's an unworthy way to take the supper. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, and we have to take care to do it the way he commanded. Remember, Jesus commands this. And this can seem kind of exclusive, and that can be hard in our world right now, but we're doing this because Jesus commanded it this way. And we, we want to tell the truth to people. We want people to tell the truth about themselves. Next, the Lord's Supper is meant to deepen the fellowship of believers. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians, again, 10, 16 through 17, when he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation of the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation of the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We should feel a deepening of communion with fellow believers when we take the Lord's Supper together. In the same way you feel closer to a family when you sit down at their table and have a family meal with them, it's supposed to be the same way with the Lord's Supper. It's like us sitting down at the family table together, and Jesus is the host, and we get to have fellowship together. The Lord's Supper should bring communion and deeper fellowship for us. Next, we're given spiritual nourishment when we eat the Lord's Supper. When we reflect on the cross, our souls are fed. Reflecting on Jesus' sacrifice for us is like receiving a spiritual steak. It's sustenance for our hungry souls. And just like we need to eat often to be healthy... We should take the Lord's Supper often in order to be spiritually fed. Spiritual nourishment can only come through faith. And therefore, again, the supper is meant for believers. We're not eating, we're not eating in the deepest sense with our literal mouths. Yes, we take those elements. But in the deepest sense, we are eating with the mouth of faith. And we are soaking in God's promises to us and his faithfulness to us. But here's the difference between having kind of physical sustenance and nourishment from physical food and the spiritual nourishment of the Lord's Supper. You want to know the only meal where gluttony is impossible? The only time when drink, uh, when there's not temperance in drink, it's Lord's Supper. Gluttony is impossible when Jesus is what you're feasting on. And so Jonathan Edwards actually has this beautiful quote um, in his sermon, and I'm not going to read it out, but basically what he says is that when you take the Lord's Supper and you are kind of captivated by what Jesus has done for you, you know, we spend all of our life trying to fight temptation and set boundaries. This is the one time we don't have to do it. You will take all of the, of the beautiful nourishment that God will give you in the Lord's Supper. D- don't set any boundaries. Just say, God, whatever you want to give me in this supper, all of the ways you want to show your love to me, I want to experience it. 
Gluttony is impossible when you take the Lord's Supper. It's impossible to be overnourished when you take the Lord's Supper. And finally, we are meant to take the Lord's Supper until Jesus comes again in glory. Uh, Paul affirms this again in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six when he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper, and we are going to celebrate it when we come together as a church until Jesus comes again in glory. So, it's a lot of truth there, but I want to set up basically just a, a basic framework for what we believe about the Lord's Supper, because we're going to take a little bit of a turn in the message, and this isn't, this isn't kind of normal for us at 20-somethings, and I think you'll see. Um, now that we've got just a good setup and a good foundation of what we believe, I think it's important we make some clarifications. And maybe the most important of those is to draw the distinction between the Catholic view of the Lord's Supper and the Protestant view of the Lord's Supper. Now, before I do this, I just want to make this clear. Neither I nor anyone in 20-somethings has a desire just to focus on differences. Well, one of the things you'll find if you're around us very long is that we love the fellowship of believers. Not all of us believe the very same things about the Bible or about theology, but what we do believe is the gospel. Even just at our core, we're a partnership between two churches. LCF and PV don't believe identical things. They're very similar, but we have a fellowship for the sake of the gospel. So we are not here to exclude in that sense. But every once in a while, there are genuine doctrinal distinctions that I think actually help us better understand what we really believe and are important for us to point out. We have people from 10, 12 different churches represented here. And so we are all about bringing together believers, but I think these differences are really important. So with that being said, I want us to look briefly at the differences between the Protestant and Catholic views of the Lord's Supper, because again, they're deep and important, and I think you will see why. So here's my ask of you. One, for some grace, but two, I'm going to ask for the next few minutes that you would lean in and put your thinking cap on, because part of what I'm going to do is I just want to read the official Catholic teaching on the Lord's Supper. I want to give them all the credit. I'm not here to build straw men. I want to read them exactly how they claim. And then we're going to reflect on that for a second. So if you'd lean in for a little bit, put your thinking cap on, we're going to reflect, and then we can, we can kind of take a mental breath as we close out the message. So, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the most recent comprehensive explanation of the Church's doctrinal beliefs comes from 1997. The Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, or the Mass, they're all kind of the you know, same, different name for the same thing. The Catholic Church says it is the source and summit of the Christian life. The Council of Trent, another major Catholic explanation of doctrine, calls the Lord's Supper the greatest of the sacraments. If a sermon is kind of the center of Protestant church services, the Lord's Supper is the center of Catholic church services. And at the center of the Catholic view of the Lord's Supper is a belief called transubstantiation. And transubstantiation is a fancy word that we're going to define in a second, but here's part of what you need to know. This does not go back to the early church. It was not officially recognized by the Catholic Church until the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 AD, and then more formally in the Council of Trent in the 1500s. Just a quick side note, you're going to hear some names and dates. You don't need to memorize any of these at all. This is just for, I know some of you are really into that. For those of you that are not into histo- you know, historical dates or things, you can, you can tune that out and just get the point of what I'm saying. 
So, I'm going to read for you exactly what the Catholic Church's most recent and official teaching on transubstantiation says. And so we're going to have some quotes on the screen for reference. I'm going to read these directly through. It says this, In the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained. This presence is called real, by which is not intended to exclude other types of presence as if they could not be real too, but because it is presence in the fullest sense. That is to say, it is a substantial presence by which Christ, God and man, makes himself holy and entirely present. It is by the conversion of the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood that Christ becomes present in this sacrament. The Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by, by declaring, because Christ, our Redeemer, said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God, and his holy council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes a place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change, the holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. Okay, that was a lot. And for some of you, maybe that's the, the most seminary edu education you've ever had. I want to break that down for just a moment so we can understand what that means. What the Catholic Church is saying is that they believe that in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine are converted into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. So when a devout Catholic partakes in the Lord's Supper, they are literally eating the body and blood of Jesus, not figuratively, as we Protestants would say. Well, that is a huge claim, and it's one we need to address, because as we address it, you will see some important distinctions between the Protestant and Catholic view. To be clear... We as Protestants do not believe that when we take the Lord's Supper that we are eating the literal body and blood of Jesus. We deny the doctrine of transubstantiation. Let me just give you just a few reasons why. First, and maybe the most obvious reason is this. When Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and holds up the bread and holds up the wine and says, this is my body and blood, he is literally sitting in front of the disciples in bodily form. Think about that. None of the disciples would have been confused at all. They would they wouldn't have been saying, wait, wait, Jesus, is the bread your body or is your literal body your body? Or is... They wouldn't have been confused like that. They would have known he was making an illustrated point. You and I do this all of the time in language. Pastor Kevin DeYoung has this helpful picture to kind of explain this, and he, he, he says it like this. Imagine we are walking through your home or your apartment, and you're kind of giving me a tour, and we come across some pictures, and you show me a picture of yourself. Maybe it's you and your family on vacation at Disney World. You can honestly say, this is me at Disney World with my family, but not for a moment would I, would I believe that I could reach out and touch you in that picture. That picture is actually you, but it's not physically you in the current moment. See the distinction there? The next reason why we don't believe in uh, transubstantiation is also kind of based on a common sense view, and it's this. If the bread at the supper is Jesus' body and the wine is his blood, then that means his body and his blood are separated. And this brings about the obvious point. If you separate someone's body from their blood, then they'll die. So logically, that doesn't work. One of the final reasons I'll mention is this. And it's just going to be a touch more technical. Lean in with me for a second, but I think you'll understand why this is important. 
the Bible affirms that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. And in light of this, uh, the, the church of Christ has held that Christ has two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. And we see this in the Council of Chalcedon from 451 AD. If, you, if you're interested in going back, you can read it there. The church beautifully explains this. Jesus has a human nature and a divine nature. He experienced, in his human nature, he experienced weakness like us, temptation like us. He had a physical human body just like us, and so on. In Jesus' divine nature, it contains all of the divine attributes such as omniscience, omnipresence, omnibenevolence, absolute sovereignty, and more. Those two natures are not mixed or melded, but they're held together in the person of Christ. Jesus has always had a divine nature, but when he came down to earth and became incarnate, took on flesh, he took on a human nature just like ours. Now, why do I lay all that technical detail out? Because it's important because the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation totally confuses the Bible's teachings about the two natures of Christ. The Bible says that after his resurrection, Jesus ascended bodily into heaven. Jesus' physical human nature is right now sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And yet the Catholic Church says that the physical human nature of Jesus is actually present at the Lord's Supper. And not just in one place, but tens of thousands of places across the globe at the same time, wherever the Lord's Supper is celebrated. Human bodies, human natures can't do that. Humans can only be in one place at one time. Now, after all of that technical language, some of you may wish your human body, your human nature could be anywhere else from here, but uh, we can't do that. We're, human bodies are in one place at one time. If Jesus' human nature can be present at multiple places at once, then it's not a human nature. And here's the real sticking point. If Jesus' human nature is fundamentally different than ours, then it can't rightly be said that Jesus fulfilled the law for us or took our place on the cross to pay for our sins because he wouldn't be a suitable human substitute for us. A non-human cannot take the place of humanity at the cross. And if this is true, then our salvation is broken, non-existent, and worthless. If all of this is true, we have no hope and we are all destined for hell. That point may be technical, but I hope you can see that it's important and relates to the very core of the gospel. Yes, it is true that Jesus is present at the Lord's Supper, but his presence is spiritual, not physical. Christ is spiritually present at the Lord's Supper by his divine omniscience, or sorry, by his divine omnipresence. He's present everywhere in his divine nature and by his Holy Spirit who rests in us believers when we take the supper together. The bread and the wine are not literally his body and blood. So, like I said, I know these points are technical, but I believe you can handle them, and I believe that you can see why they relate to the gospel. There's so much more that we could say about the Catholic view of the Lord's Supper, but I just want to draw your attention to one more key gospel point before we can kind of take our, our deep thinking caps off. In order to make this point, I want to draw your attention to one more important council that I've already mentioned tonight. It's called the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent is one of the most significant councils in the history of the Catholic Church. Before the 20th century, the Council of Trent was arguably the most comprehensive explanation of the Catholic Church's teaching. The Council of Trent took place in the middle of the 16th century, the 1500s, in response to the Protestant Reformation. And it took place over some 17 years, and it was meant to clarify the teaching of the Catholic Church in distinction from the Reformers. So I'm going to read just a few of the decrees 
from the Council of Trent directly related to the Lord's Supper. It says this. We'll have a slide for it. And inasmuch in this divine sacrifice, which is performed in the Mass, the same Christ is contained and immolated in a bloodless manner, who once offered himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross. The Holy Synod teaches that this sacrifice is truly propitiatory, and by means thereof is effected that we obtain mercy and find grace and convenient aid if we draw nigh unto God, contrite and penitent, with a true heart and upright faith, with fear and reverence. And then catch this. Wherefore, not only for the sins, punishments, satisfactions, and other necessities of the faithful who are alive, but also for those who are departed in Christ and who are not as yet fully purified, is it rightly offered." Okay, that's, that's a lot of technical language. What is the Council of Trent trying to say? It's saying that because of transubstantiation, the Lord's Supper is essentially a re-sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. And what's more, it's saying that this re-sacrifice is genuinely efficacious for us right now to save us from our sins. Furthermore, the Council of Trent says that the re-sacrifice of the Lord's Supper can also be effective for Christians who have already died and who those folks who are also in purgatory, which is another Catholic belief. To be clear, the modern catechism of the Catholic Church doesn't go quite this far. They don't seem to explicitly state this claim. They kind of take one half step back from it. But the modern catechism of the Catholic Church cites and follows the Council of Trent every single point of the way. If you, if you were to go through the footnotes, and you're kind of a nerd like me, it's just every footnote is quoting the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent is a core foundation of the modern Catholic Church's view of the Lord's Supper. And Trent makes a gigantic claim that Jesus is re-sacrificed at every Lord's Supper. And that gigantic claim is in direct contradiction with Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 10 to 14 says this, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered once for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus' death at the cross was a one-time sacrifice for sin that is effective for all time. We don't need any more sacrifices for sin. Jesus' death at the cross was enough. It was totally sufficient. This is absolutely a gospel issue, and we should take it seriously. The Catholic Church certainly does. Listen to these direct claims from the Council of Trent that the modern Catholic Church has never renounced and therefore still holds to. These canons are called anathema. I just, I just want you to feel the weight of these for a second. Again, I, we, don't, we never do this. I've never done this in a message, but I just think this is important. These are real claims that the Catholic Church holds to right now. And I want you to, I want you to reflect on these. When it says something, something or someone is anathema, that it means they are damned to hell. Okay, we're going to have these on the screen. I'm just going to read just a few of the canons here. Canon number one, if anyone shall say that in the Mass a true and proper sacrifice is not offered to God, or that to be offered is nothing else but that Christ is given unto us to eat, let him be anathema, damned to hell. Canon number two, if anyone shall say that by those words, do this in remembrance of me, Christ did not institute the apostles, priests, 
or did not ordain that they and the other priests should offer his own body and blood, let, it, let them be anathema, damned to hell. Canon number three. If anyone shall say that the sacrifice of, of the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, or that it is a bare commemoration of the sacrifice offered on the cross, but not a propitiatory sacrifice, or that it avails him only who receiveth it, and that it ought not to be offered for the living and the dead for sins, punishments, satisfactions, and other necessities, let him be anathema, damned to hell. If anyone shall say that by the sacrifice of the Mass, a blasphemy is thrown upon the most holy sacrifices of Christ offered on the cross, or that it is thereby derogated from, let him be anathema, damned to hell. Two more. Canon number five. If anyone shall say that this is an imposture to celebrate Masses in honor of the saints, so they're adoring the saints, not just Christ, and for the obtaining their intercession with God, the saints' intercession, not the Holy Spirit of Christ, as the church intends, let them be anathema, damned to hell. Final one. If anyone shall say that the canon of the Mass contains errors and therefore is therefore to be abrogated, let him be anathema, damned to hell. According to the teachings in the book of the Catholic Church, any of us here tonight that hold to what I would say is a biblical view of the Lord's Supper, it's not a re-sacrifice, it doesn't, it's not efficacious for our sins, but it's a memorial, a remembrance of what Jesus has done. Anyone that holds to that view, according to the Catholic Church, is damned to hell. Think about that. That is serious. And again, if this is your first time with us, this is not normal for us to do this. I don't think I've ever done this in a message before, but I want you to feel the weight of that. I know that some of you hate talking about doctrine. You hate anything that would divide. And I do too. I, I don't want to divide at all. But there are some divisions that are important. And this is one of them. If someone says that our souls are destined for hell because of our belief, I would say that's a pretty important doctrinal belief. And we should understand it. We should know it. Now, if we walk into our, our local Catholic church, is the priest going to treat us this way? No, probably not. But on the books... By the teaching of the official Catholic Church. This is, this is what the Catholic Church believes. And it's important we know that. Okay, now you can kind of take the mental breath. All the technical stuff is done. Take a breath. I just want you to see that this is important. I think the... Yeah. Uh, actually, the early church fought this belief because when people read John 6, which I don't think is talking about the Lord's Supper, but a lot of people do, saying that Jesus says, I, I am the true bread. If uh, Those who eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, they will have eternal life. People wondered if, the, if uh, Christianity was actually cannibalistic. And so the early church had to fight that off and say, no, 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 that's not what we're saying at all, which would be another defense, to your point, uh, against transubstantiation. So is that, does that answer what you're saying? Here's the sad part about this. We're, not, we're done talking about division, things like that. I know for some of you that makes you really uncomfortable. I'm, I'm a people pleaser. It makes me uncomfortable too, but it's important. But the sad part about the divisions related to the Lord's Supper is just like we talked about earlier, the Lord's Supper is actually meant to bring believers together. Just like we saw from 1 Corinthians 10, the Lord's Supper is meant to promote fellowship between Christians as they celebrate and remember Jesus' sacrifice at the cross in the gospel. I mean, this is meant to be a warm family meal, not, not the kind of Thanksgiving family meal where we argue about politics, but like the warm, fun family meal. That's what this is the Lord's Supper is supposed to be. 
Yet Satan loves to divide the church over this issue. But God intends the supper to unite. He wants the supper to unite us as a body of believers. In fact, theologian Derek Kidner points this out. The Lord's Supper is actually meant to reverse the work of Satan. Think about it. Cast your mind all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when they sin by eating the fruit of the tree. And what is it that Satan tells Eve to do with the fruit? He tells her, take and eat. And with that, sin was devastatingly ushered into the world. But many years later, Jesus would sit at the table with his disciples and he would hold up the bread and he would hold up the wine. And what would he say? Take and eat. And with that, Jesus would point them to the very way that the curse of sin would be undone forever at the cross. And from that point forward, take and eat went from verbs of destruction to verbs of salvation. And the church gets to celebrate this great salvation every single time she takes the Lord's Supper. God has always given his people meals to celebrate his love and salvation for them. In the Old Testament, God gave his people the Passover to celebrate his love and salvation for them in the Exodus. In the New Covenant, God has given us the Lord's Supper to celebrate his love and salvation for us at the cross. The Lord's Supper is a meal that points us back to God's display of love, but it also points us forward to another meal that displays God's love. The great wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19. This is the great wedding feast at the end of time that celebrates the spiritual consummation of the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church. And that spiritual marriage is made possible by the very thing that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, the cross. Reflecting on all of this, Sinclair Ferguson draws out a beautiful point. Kind of blew my mind when I, when I first heard it. He compares the Lord's Supper to a rehearsal dinner. The rehearsal dinner is the feast before the great wedding feast. And the father of the groom pays the price for that meal. Then the wedding reception is the fullest and final feast to celebrate this beautiful love. And the father of the bride pays for that meal. The Lord's Supper is the rehearsal dinner. It's the feast before the great wedding feast at the end of time. And the father of the groom has paid the price in Jesus. And the marriage feast of the Lamb at the end of time is like the great wedding reception. And the father of the bride, the church, has paid the price for that meal. And in this case, the father of the groom and the father of the bride are the same. God is the father of both, and he paid the price for both meals in Jesus at the cross. Ferguson kind of continues that analogy of the Lord's Supper, to, and he goes on talking about a wedding by saying that every single time we remember and affirm the gospel in the Lord's Supper, it's as if we're taking our wedding vows again, saying, forsaking all others, we will take Jesus as our lawfully wedded husband. And then we have a feast to honor it. In closing, I just want us to think about this. The Lord's Supper is the most romantic meal you will ever eat. The Lord's Supper is the most romantic meal you will ever eat. You might be thinking, what the heck? I thought it was Valentine's Day when we made pork chops. But the Lord's Supper is the most romantic meal you will ever eat. Not because there's rose petals around the table or something, or because it's a candle at dinner, or because Barry White's playing in the background. It's the most romantic meal because Jesus is reminding us how much he loves us. The Lord's Supper is like an anniversary dinner for a married couple. At the dinner, the husband deeply, continually, and clearly reminds his bride of his great love for her. 
And at the dinner, the husband draws his wife's attention to a gift and a letter to show and describe his love for her. That's exactly what Jesus does in the Lord's Supper and in his word. He draws our attention to the gift he gave in himself, and he, he puts it down in writing in his word. He wrote all of this down as a love letter for us to reflect on. The Lord's Supper is one of the most beautiful experiences of the Christian life, and it should never grow old, and we should never take it for granted. In it, we get to taste and see that the Lord is good. In it, we get to reflect on Jesus' love for us. In it, we are reminded of Jesus' great salvation that he offers to the world. And in it, we can almost hear God's words in Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. There's no price because Jesus has paid the price. So, this would be the point where you would expect us to come forward, we have some emotional music, and we take the Lord's Supper, but we're not going to do that this week. It feels kind of weird, but I promise there's a point. Normally, again, that's exactly what we do, but next week, next Thursday, is Maundy Thursday, and traditionally in the history of the church, they have celebrated the Lord's Supper on Maundy Thursday, and so our intent for this message was this. We want to get your mind stirring on the Lord's Supper, It is so easy for us that have grown up in church to make the Lord's Supper just kind of another service element. A couple minutes where we're kind of silent. Someone's on the stage telling us what to do. We eat the kind of gross-tasting cracker and have the grape juice, and then we move on. But that's not what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be like. We're supposed to feel a weight and a gravity and a beauty about it. So I want us to prepare our hearts and minds for the Lord's Supper next week. That that is common in the tradition of the church, to actually give people a one-week warning of the Lord's Supper so they can prepare their hearts to partake in the meal. Next week, we're going to have a reflective service. We've got a number of worship songs. There won't be a formal message, and it's going to be this reflection on the Lord's Supper where we can pray together and sing together, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together then. I'm excited, and in the meantime, let's prepare our hearts to take the supper. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you... You've given us the supper so we can be reminded of your love for us. That we thank you for what you did at the cross in Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice and we thank you for the opportunity to remember. God, help us to understand the beauty of the Lord's Supper. Help us to feel the gravity of it. That we wouldn't just rush through it in future days, but we would understand that this is an amazing gift you have given to us and that we might enjoy it and soak it up and understand it. God, prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together? Would it deepen our fellowship of believers? Would this be a beautiful picture of the body of Christ, not just in one church, but in many churches? I'm thankful for this ministry. I'm thankful for the opportunity for us to be able to take the supper. And we look forward to next week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the podcast by Pleasant Valley. If you want to hear more from us, you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and our website, pleasantvalley.org. God bless.